2006, September 22nd. Today is Lecture 3, The Starry Night, which will begin in just a moment. Right. Now, this is an astronomy class, and of course, yesterday didn't seem a whole lot like an astronomy class sometimes, talking about meters and kilograms and seconds. We're going to begin the discussion of the descriptive astronomy, what we can actually see when we look up in the sky. We're going to use this lecture as kind of a transition from the introductory portions of the course into the first major unit, which will begin on Monday, on the descriptive description of the heavens, in a lecture I like to call the Starry Night. Now, the key ideas today to understand from this lecture are as follows. The first is that if you were to walk out in a nice dark sky, there are about 6,000 stars visible to the naked eye. They basically form the cosmic backdrop against nearly every single descriptive observation we're going to discuss for the next two weeks plays out against. This is the tapestry against which we see everything going. Now, these arrangements of stars are pretty much random. There are some patternings within them. Some of those patterns jump out to the eye, and we call those patternings, those bringing together of stars, constellations. Traditionally, these are actually seen as figures drawn in the sky by connecting the stars like little dots. And we can do this exercise to greater or lesser degrees of success, as we will see, and we've now come up with a definition of 88 modern constellations. Some of them are arbitrary. Some of them have a tradition going back uh, well beyond recorded history, perhaps. We're going to see why they're useful as sort of mnemonics. They're signposts. They're allowing us to say where something goes on in the sky by recognizing patterns of stars and saying, oh, yes, that's against the constellation of Orion or something like that. We're going to talk a bit about the uses of constellations, why we care about the constellations, talk about various cultural and religious roles they've played throughout history, their use as navigational aids from antiquity to the modern times, even in the days of GPS, and there's even artistic purposes that have been behind the constellations, and we'll see a few interesting examples of that. And finally, I want to end up by saying just a little bit at the end about how we give names to stars, because embedded within the history of those names is a lot of the history of astronomy and our rise of our understanding of the universe that we're going to be talking about over the next three, four weeks. So today's lecture is going to be about the starry night, in particular about constellations and what the backdrop is for everything we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. So if we walk outside the nighttime sky, here's a beautiful photograph of a section of the winter sky. Some of you may recognize that little lump of stars up there is the little clump of stars known as the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. About 6,000 stars are visible to the naked eye on the moonless night throughout the course of a year. On a single night, you won't see 6,000 stars. If you stay up through darkness on a very long night at middle latitudes, you probably see about two-thirds of the entire night sky. One-third of that is permanently below the horizon. We'll see a little bit about how that works next week in detail. This is only a tiny, tiny fraction of all the stars that actually exist in the Milky Way galaxy of which we are resident. The current estimates are that the Milky Way is composed of nearly 200 billion stars. So we're seeing only the, the very tip of the iceberg. We're barely seeing the nearest, brightest stars and a handful of very distant, very super bright stars. So we look out, we see this sort of background, this sort of patterning of, of, of little points of light against the darkness and an occasional star that doesn't behave in quite the same way and moves. And of course, those are the planets, which will be a major topic of this course. Now, if you'll stand and stare at any random pattern, this is the human, remember, the human brain evolved and developed as a visual system for all kinds of different purposes, primarily for survival. One thing our human visual system is very good at is picking out patterns. You know, a lazy afternoon looking at clouds, you start seeing, you know, faces, animals, things like that. We love to play games with our imagination. 
And certainly, if you spend any time out with the night sky, and it's the one real disadvantage of our modern world with bright streetlights and large urban areas, is we really obliterate most of the night sky with our lighting. But get out to the country, get out to a dark place on a summer's night, and just sort of lie there in a lazy fashion, swatting mosquitoes and watching the stars, and pretty soon, you'll start, your brain will start playing games. It'll start recognizing patterns. And certainly, this is not anything modern. It's something that probably human beings have been doing all along since we became human beings. We take these patterns and we connect them in the various stars, play a little connect-the-dots games, and pretty soon we see figures. For example, we might see the figure of a giant bear. This is a very pretty picture from the Bayer Atlas of stars made in the, in the late 18th century. We call these connections of stars constellations. They're starry figures. Basically, they're little memory aids at some fundamental level, figuring out what's going on. Every single culture we've come into contact with Every single people that's left any historical record have all populated the night sky with some form of constellation or another. It's one of the very few things that seems to unite us across the many places and times that we've lived is we've all looked at nearly exactly the same night sky because processes in astronomy play out over time scales of millions to billions of years. So the sky that we see to a first approximation tonight if we walked out on a clear night is the same sky that would have been seen thousands or even a million years ago. The earliest constellations we know of can be very old indeed. For example, this is a, a drawing based on a, a tomb painting of tomb of, of Pharaoh Seti I, which dates back to 1275 BC. And there's many constellations in here, but some of them are even vaguely familiar. For example, a crouching lion or a bull. Perhaps even, as you can see it over in the corner, a man with a raised arm. The Aztec and Maya people of the, of the New World also had their own systems of constellations. We have very few survivals from the Aztec period because the Spanish, frankly, burned just about everything they got their hands on. But a handful of the codices have survived, and one of those codices actually contains astronomical texts which have been roughly translated. There's actually Spanish-language translations underneath, which shows us, for example, this is a stylized depiction of the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, which was observed by the Aztecs. It was one of the constellations in their heavens. The Chinese, for a very large part of their history, were very avid sky watchers. In fact, some of the oldest extant detailed star maps, which are physically recognizable, is accurate enough to actually compare to modern computer-generated star maps, come from about basically the 9th or 10th centuries AD, but they're extremely detailed. The constellations sometimes are very familiar. You'll notice in this little connection here, this is what's called the Dunhuan chart, which came from the Tang Dynasty in the 7th century AD. These are the set of the stars which live around the so-called circumpolar region, and there, right in the middle, we can immediately recognize the Big Dipper. It's a very common figure. It's made up of very bright stars, and they don't call it necessarily the Dipper. They had different names for it at different times, but everyone seems to recognize certain bright patternings. And if you know the night sky fairly well, you might recognize, even though they've connected the dots differently and tell different stories with them, they're the same stars. Now, these figures of constellations are composed mostly of the bright stars that stand out against the background sky. And what's really cool about some of these constellations is they really look like what they sort of are named for. My favorite of these, of course, is, is the scorpion, Scorpius here. It really does look like a scorpion. And what's interesting is if you look across multiple cultures and even deep in time where the records have come back to us in some form, we actually found the same traditional constellations, even with peoples who had no contact with each other. 
For example, Orion, which we're going to see increasingly in the night sky as the winter comes on through this quarter, has been depicted as a human male with a raised arm for, as near as we can tell, more than 5,000 years by, by extremely disparate cultures. Desert peoples all recognize a certain patterning of stars in the summer sky as a shape of a scorpion. It's actually the constellation of Scorpius. There are long chains of, of stars where you can see bright stars kind of make a long line. They've been called celestial rivers, great snakes, long dragons, all kinds of things. So we've all come up with the same basic patternings converged on a similar set. Not always, but for the bright, distinct constellations we certainly have. Let's take as an example one of these Orion. Orion, of course, is, is, is a wonderful constellation of the winter sky. It's in the present age, it's in the winter. It's visible in the east just after sunset tonight. If it wasn't for the fact it's probably going to be raining tonight, but over the next few nights, if you get up after sunset, you should be able to see it. It's nearly always seen as a human figure. This is now standing in the northern hemisphere. When we stand in the northern hemisphere and we face towards the south, which is where Orion is usually towards the southern part of the, of the compass then north will be kind of up, east will be kind of to our left. And if you were to stand in that perspective, this is the way in which you would see Orion. Orion has a slightly different view in the southern hemisphere where you have to turn around and face north to see Orion. First time I went to Chile, I was completely flummoxed by the fact that the constellation looks familiar. What's wrong with it? And then I realized I was south of the equator. I was facing north instead of south, and Orion was standing on his head. It took me a while to, it took me a while to recognize it. And then, of course, their pattern pops out, and there it is. So this is the way that the Orion's been viewed. This is where we would see it if I, this is a computer, this is actually a photograph of the sky, and then I've used a computer to dot in the stars and draw the lines together. Orion has been depicted for more than 5,000 years in various ways. For example, the Flamsteed Atlas here, shown in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, from the Atlas Celeste from 1776, shows the traditional you know, Roman mythology figure of Orion the hunter about to cave in the skull there of Taurus the bull. But we see the raised arm and clove, the belt and the sword hanging down from there. An Egyptian papyrus of the 13th century BC shows a depiction of the pharaoh about with a raised arm and a large club about to bonk on the head an enemy of the people. He has a belt and outstretched hands. The pharaoh was depicted in this way perhaps to show his heavenly connection, that he was in fact making, if he will, the form of Orion seen in the night sky of Egypt. And in fact, this figure is extremely old. The Palette of Narmer, which is one of the oldest surviving intact pieces of ancient Egyptian civilization, goes back to 3200 BC. We see this exact same theme recapitulated over and over again through Egyptian art. And it is, is in many ways, the depiction of the constellation of Orion. So something we've all seen for a very long time. Here, more than 5,000 years of the depiction of the same patterning of stars, different cultural applications, in this case, adding to the divine um, legitimacy of the Egyptian ruler. And here, uh, a remembrance of old mythologies and a signpost in the sky for a more scientific age. Now, constellations, the, the idea of classical constellations, we look at, at Orion, Scorpius, Libra, a lot of the familiar constellations. Some of these are extremely old. The Pallet of Narmer shows one going back to about 3000 BC. There are some surviving cuneiform tablets which go back about as far from Mesopotamia, which show depictions of constellations which are recognizable to us today as the bright classical constellations of the sky. Now, the Greek astronomer Ptolemy, who worked in the period of late antiquity during the Roman Empire out of Alexandria, came up with a set of 48 classical constellations that have largely survived intact to this day 
as those bright constellations visible from northern latitudes. Of course, Ptolemy was working in the Mediterranean world. He did not know about the constellations of the southern hemisphere because they just didn't travel that far south. So by the second century AD, most of the constellations we knew of kind of got cast in stone because Ptolemy's astronomical work is really the only one to have survived intact from the period of late antiquity. It was the one that had the greatest influence on the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in determining what the constellations were. But the oral tradition that survived through the Dark Ages actually preserved most of them because they actually, as we'll see, turned out to be useful. And these 48 constellations, here's a, uh, a nice Renaissance painting of these from a star chart by Albrecht Dürer, the great German woodcut artist. Um, shows the depiction of the 48 constellations. And you'll recognize a lot of them. The main constellations of the so-called Zodiac, Taurus the Bull, Gemini the Twins, Cancer the Crab, although it's looking very lobster-like there, Leo the Lion, Virgo, Scorpius, Sagittarius, all around the line, the Big Bear, the Little Bear, Orion, and various other characters from mythology. The Actually, the oldest surviving depiction of the classical constellations comes to us from a Roman sculpture called the Farnese Atlas. It's called this because it, it resides in the Farnese Palace in, in, in Italy. There's a globe on Atlas's back. Atlas was the god who carried the globe of the earth on his back. And if you look at the careful engraving of this globe, it isn't just simply decorative. The constellation, the classical 48 constellations on this globe are laid out in their proper proportions, in their proper locations across the sphere of the nighttime sky. Now, there's been some comment by some astronomers that if you look carefully, some of the engravings of individual stars on here are astronomically accurate. That's highly contentious. But if it is, if that's actually correct, this would be the oldest surviving accurate star map that we know of, that we can actually see. But it's hard to say whether it's a mix between an actual scientific record, which it isn't, and decorative, which it almost certainly is. This trick of populating the sky went on not simply after classical times. Ptolemy and his work really only saw the northern latitudes. But with the rise of exploration and seafaring exploration in sort of the late, starting in around kind of the late 15th century, the voyages of the Portuguese and the Spanish south of the equator, as people began to make their way into the southern hemisphere, they began to see constellations which are normally below the horizon for northern observers, and so they began to fill in the gaps in the sky. Now, the peoples who actually lived down in the south, for example, aboriginal um, peoples of, um, of Australia, the natives of South Africa, and any of the other sub, uh, southern equator groups, had their own constellations. But, of course, the Europeans, as they went down there, began to make their own to fill in their star charts, which were used primarily for navigation. As they did this, they had to invent new constellations to augment the classical 48 of Ptolemy. And they came up with a variety of themes. Whereas Ptolemy drew from Greek and Roman mythology, which was common for his day in the second century AD, so too the map makers of the 16th through 18th centuries drew upon their own popular culture. We see both classical illusions, sort of carrying on the work of the Romans and adding more classical mythology to it, other groups actually decided to repopulate the sky with biblical figures, or perhaps with modern themes, maybe modern technologies, with modern sailing ships or air pumps, for example. The thing is, it was a rather haphazard task. At one time, at various times, there have been up to 150 constellations scattered across the sky, the 48 old ones and a mix of new ones, and even some, some constellations from antiquity that were so big they broke them into parts. Argo Navis is a good example from the south. 
As a, cons as a consequence, there's a lot of defunct constellations. Constellations that had a brief sort of bit of popularity, and then, you know, after a while, people said, eh, yeah, I don't see that. Stop doing that. Let's take, for example, this, I'm sorry. So all of this um, confusion finally got sorted out in the late 1800s, about 1880 or so, when the International Astronomical, or that what would become the International Astronomical Union, decided to bring a little order to all sort of the multicultural chaos going on and winnowed through the various constellation systems and settled finally on an official set of 88 constellations. They're the f mostly the 48 classical constellations of Ptolemy with a few subtractions and adding a roughly no equal number to fill in the southern hemisphere. And these now with their boundaries as to where their zones are on the sky are the constellations that we use on modern star charts to say, Ah, yes, that galaxy or that comet is in the constellation of Cetus or whatever. This is the official list, so we now all agree upon what's going on in the sky. I'll show you a few of these constellations. Some of these constellation systems that people came up with were very, very imaginative. You know, there are lots of dogs in the sky. There's the big dog, Canis Major, the little dog, Canis Minor. There are the hunting dogs, Canis Venetici. The Romans were really big dog people. Uh, but my wife's a real cat person, and she's very upset that there are no cats in the sky. There's lion, but no cat. So um, Alexander Jameson, in his Celestial Atlas, picked up on a defunct classification called Felis the Cat. Here it is, a proper house cat. It never really caught on. Hydra here is a classical constellation of Hydra, the, the big water snake. But Felis, well, you know, I don't really see a cat there. It's really kind of hard to see. In fact, some of these stars are so faint, they're not even visible to the naked eye. So Felis, while it was a great thing to have a cat in the sky, sorry to the cat lovers, it never really lasted because it was made out of such faint and distinct stars. This is actually a beautiful picture. This is a, a present I gave my wife back when we were actually dating. Um, it's an actual reproduction. Actually, not a reproduction. It was an original version of the 1822 star map. This was her favorite constellation. I got a lot of brownie points for that. You know, Julius Schiller decided... In the, year 16, in the 1620s, that, that having all these pagan figures in the sky basically deeply offended his uh, Protestant sensibilities. And so he proceeded to basically junk all of the classical constellations and try to revive a new set of constellations based on biblical characters from the Old and New Testament. He put the New Testament in the Northern Hemisphere, the Old Testament in the Southern Hemisphere. He came up with all these different figures. There's, there's the four evangelists, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this particular constellation surviving here, this is the constellation of St. Helena and the True Cross. St. Helena, for those of you who may remember, was the mother of Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, who was the first one to legalize Christianity in around the year 300 AD. And in fact, what this cross-like constellation of bright stars is what used to be the constellation of Cygnus the Swan in the classical period. This system never caught on. The, the, the Celum Stellatium Christianum of 1627 never caught on. And part of the reason for that is we kind of know what a scorpion looks like. We kind of know what a lion crouching looks like. We know what a guy with a big club about to bash in some bull's head looks like. What does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John look like? That's actually the problem. There isn't a cultural hostility to these figures. It's the fact that when you look up in the sky, that you know, why does that look like an evangelist and that over there look like a saint of the martyr group? You know, there's something really distinctive about these characters compared to the patterns in the sky. They were so intent on imposing the figures on the sky, they forgot that the whole point of them was to remember which star pattern you're looking at when you're standing out on the ship of a deck of a ship or something in the middle of the night. 
Now, this one would have lasted because Cygnus is a great big cross-like pattern in the sky, although the Romans saw it as a long-necked swan with outstretched wings. So a lot of these constellation patterns really never caught on. And they never caught on because they didn't look like what they looked like. And not all of them do. Now, why do we have constellations? What's the purpose of these things? Well, one of the purpose of the constellations has been storytelling mnemonics. Remember that while we are, we are, a, we are a people of, of words, we are people who live by the written word primarily. Our lives are filled with books and writing. That's an anomaly. That's in hi human history, this is a relatively recent invention. Through most of human history, we relied upon our memory for our history. Only a handful of people could read and write. And so one of the roles that stars played were mnemonics for storytelling. They were like celestial cheat seats in the sky. You could spool out stories on a dark, starry night by recognizing a particular patterning, a grouping of stars, say, ah, yes, this here is the story, for example, of Perseus and Andromeda, and begin to tell that story using the patternings in the sky. Many, many years ago, when I was in high school, I worked as I was a Boy Scout. I worked at a scout camp up in the Sierra Nevada. And one of the things we would do is we'd motor out the boats into the middle of the, this lake in the high Sierra, cut all the lights in these unbelievably velvet black skies in the deep Sierras, set the stars up, and then I'd get out a, not a laser pointer, but a very bright flashlight and use it as a pointer and, and sort of show the basic constellations of summer. I was the astronomy geek for the, for the camp. And as I began to do that, I began to find that, yeah, you know, there really are these story groups among the constellations. And I could remember those stories, but okay, now there's the constellation of Cassiopeia, Andromeda, and Pegasus. And you could tell the whole story because it was a whole group of constellations. So it was one of the purposes of the constellations. And those figures were often culture heroes or deities that figured in those stories. There are other uses of the stars and other uses of the constellations. They often had ritual and religious uses. For example, the Lakota Sioux have a sacred hoop ceremonial site up in, up in Wyoming. Some of the alignments are the classical sun and moon type of alignments, you know, rising on the equinox and the solstices. But there are also alignments with the stars that had particular ritual meaning to them when those stars came above a certain structure in the medicine wheel. Egyptian and Mayan sacred structures had very strict alignments with respect to the stars. They would recognize certain stars as the brightest star in a certain constellation of their grouping. And there might be, for example, like in the Great Pyramid of Giza, there are opening shafts, which at particular times of the year, a star would shine straight down that shaft, designed on very strict astronomical grounds, because they had very specific ritual meanings to the people at the time. Some of those meanings are completely lost to us today. The Inca probably went as far as almost anyone. In the southern sky, the most dominant feature is the bright Milky Way that comes straight overhead at southern latitudes. The Inca actually laid out administratively parts of their empire based on a reflection of the heavenly positions, the two main heavenly positions of the Milky Way in the nighttime sky. So they had those uses there. I'll give you an example here some of these stories in the sky. Here's the constellations of Perseus, the story of Perseus and Andromeda. There's the constellation of Perseus the warrior, Andromeda the woman princess chained to the rock, the sea monster that is defeated by Perseus, the mother of Andromeda, Cepheus, a uh, mother of Andromeda is Cassiopeia, her father is Cepheus the king and queen of Ethiopia, and of course Perseus came to her rescue riding upon the winged horse Pegasus. And here's a nice painting from the 17th century of Pierre Mignard in the, in the Louvre showing Andromeda still chained to the rock. The parents, the, the hero, the winged horse, uh, various uh, naked babies with wings and stuff like that is typical this time. And you can see the horse and uh, the distressed woman on the rock and the warrior and the queen and um, 
And it's times like this that you remind yourself that between the 5th and 2nd centuries BC, the Greeks were the largest producers, exporters, and consumers of wine in the Mediterranean world. <laughs> and they were also known to have experimented with mushrooms. The medicine wheel here, this is a reconstruction of the big Lakota medicine wheel up in Bighorn County, Wyoming. It's surrounded by a fence. The site is sacred to the Lakota people, so you're not allowed to go on the site. Many of these lines here that have been reconstructed, this probably dates back to about, it's variously dated between about 1500 and 1700. It's very hard to date such sites. Some of these mounds and rocks would give you the proper alignments of the rise, latest nor furthest north or furthest south rising and setting of the moon rising of the sun, but some of these lines don't align with the sun and moon and have been found by some astroarchaeologists to in fact align with particular star risings. The meanings of those are obscure to us, but very clearly whoever set this thing out was clearly designing this on astronomical lines. They were watching particular stars and particular constellations that had meanings to them. So that's one of the uses. The other use is actually more practical. They're road maps in the sky. Constellations are mnemonic aids for navigation. For example, today, Ursa Minor is a, a mnemonic for finding the pole star Pol Polaris seen from mid-latitudes in the modern age, kind of from about the Middle Ages to the present. Now, it turns out there's an effect called precession we're going to learn about in a couple weeks that actually means that Polaris has not always been the pole star. To the ancient Egyptians, it was the star Thuban in the constellation of Draco. But certainly from the Middle Ages to the present, if you wanted to find your way north, you could find the Big Dipper, Use the Big Dipper, the so-called pointing stars that brought you up to Polaris, and the Little Dipper, Ursa Minor. And you could find your way north in a night sky without a compass. For example, I have both a brother and my, my father were both in the military, or Marines and Army respectively, and they learned this particularly for night fighting. They knew which direction north was if, those, if they were posted somewhere in the northern hemisphere. Uh, for those of you who may have studied, for example, Columbus is one of the main routes upon the so-called uh, Underground Railroad that led escaped slaves from the southern states in the middle of the 19th century up to the north. The uh, slaves, of course, were not going to be equipped with detailed maps and compasses in order to make their way north out of the uh, southern states, but they were told with this little sing-song to, to, to keep the river on one side and to follow the drinking gourd. The drinking gourd is, in fact, an African name for the, for the constellation of the Big Dipper. And so that was a way of saying, find the pole star, travel at night, you can keep yourself moving north. Very fake constellations are often very puzzling. You look at that and say, well, why would anyone make a faint co constellation out of a bunch of faint stars? We can, we can figure the ones that are bright stars, like Orion and Scorpius and the Big Bear, but why Hydra? It's kind of this funny meandering line across the sky. Well, it's a funny meandering line across the sky in the 21st century AD. But if we go back to 4000 BC, the effective precession of the Earth's equinox actually lays that line of stars on nearly a perfect east-west line across the sky from middle latitudes. And so if you were a Minoan sailor out on the Mediterranean, if you could find that faint line of skies, you had an east-west reference line to sail at night. The Polynesians are probably the greatest of all the celestial navigators. The Polynesians populated the skies above the Pacific Ocean with an amazing number of constellations, some of them seemingly very obscure, and developed from them an extremely complex and wonderfully accurate navigation system. Take a look at a globe sometime and look at all the islands, of especially the Western Pacific and the Southern Pacific, and ask yourself how people in dugout canoes, barely larger than this stage, were able to navigate across thousands of miles of empty ocean, open ocean and hit islands, some of them no bigger than the OSU campus. 
Well, they didn't do it by simply sailing out and hoping they hit something because they'd all die after a while by doing that. They knew exactly where they were going because they had an extremely detailed celestial navigation system. How did you remember it? They had no writing. They used mnemonics. They had the stories in the sky. It's, oh, yes, that's the bird or that's the breadfruit tree. And you remember the story. You don't have to carry a textbook or a map with you. The map is in your head and it's in your stories. So these things about celestial navigation, the use of stars as celestial navigation is ancient. And it continues to the modern day. Despite GPS satellites, we still navigate by the stars because, you know, sometimes the satellites don't work. And when they do, you've got to whip out the sextant and find the constellations and find out where your high-powered nuclear submarine is in the middle of the Pacific. Navigation certainly became refined during the Arabic period. Here's a 10th century Persian astrolabe. It's the oldest astrolabe we know surviving from the Persian area. And a set of constellations by, by an astronomer, a Persian astronomer by the name of Al-Sufi. Detailed maps of the constellations and descriptions. And then in the beginning of detailed calculational machinery for in this case to help, in this case, 10th century Muslim traders sailing the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Seas to find their way at night using the stars to navigate and using the constellations as mnemonics to find their way, to find their signposts. There's a final purpose, if you want to call it a purpose of that, it's high art, it's aesthetics. Some of the constellations are there because simply they are pleasing to look at. They are nice figures in the sky. Some examples is that Mayan Egyptians decorated the insides of their buildings with immense sky vaults, which were to greater or lesser degrees of accuracy representations of the heavens. In the Renaissance, there were some beautiful ornate atlases that were created that are actually just beautiful works of high art. They should be framed and hanging in museums. They're so pretty. And finally, celestial themes even have begun to occur in modern art, even though you have to look a little carefully sometimes to see them. Here's a particular beautiful example of decorative constellations. This is the Caparola Fresca. It's from the Via Farnese in Rome. No one knows who painted it around the year 1575, but you'll see all the constellations of stars and nicely gilt on this beautiful blue background and all of the classic 48 constellations of Claudius Ptolemy. This is more than just decoration. These stars are in their proper positions and their proper respective brightnesses and proportions across the sky. The person who made this was actually translating an accurate star map to the roof of this, uh, to the ceiling of, of this, this palace for a very rich Roman nobleman. Of course, we can see stars and constellations and other figures. The very famous painting by Vincent van Gogh, The Starry Night, showing a sort of crazy work of, of, of painting over the city of Arles in France. But in fact, some astronomers have actually found patternings of actual constellations within these sort of otherwise mad swapes and squirrels in this beautiful painting. If you ever get to New York and get to the Museum of Modern Art, this is marvelous to see in person. And finally, there's a constellation in there. This is a painting by Juan Miro, this Spanish um, abstract artist called Ciphers and Constellations in Love with a Woman. And I look at that and go, uh, yeah, okay. Finally, star names. Once you've laid out the constellations, given the patternings of, of constellations names, the next step was to give names to individual stars within those constellations. A few of those are relatively famous. Well, you'll recognize a few of them here in a moment. But all of them have proper names. The names for the stars that we use today are primarily Arabic, few Greek, and just a very handful of Latin. And the reason for that is that there's a very long chain of transmission which has come down from the earliest period of stars from Mesopotamia 
they passed on a lot of their star knowledge to classical Greece. Very little of the Egyptian knowledge actually made it out of Egypt, surprisingly. And the reason for that is because the Egyptian knowledge was primarily had ritual uses, and the language, even at the time of the Greeks, was untranslatable. From the Greeks, the Romans took over a lot of those trans, trans, um, traditions and made them their own and renamed the stars. But when the fall of the Roman Empire, it was the Islamic cultures rising in the Middle East that came across the old documents of Greece. Those passed through to Renaissance Europe by way of Jews and, and scholars working in Moorish Spain. And then from Renaissance Europe, they were then rationalized and put into the books of today. So what we see here is that all cultures have named the bright stars to some extent. If we go, for example, to Aboriginal Australia, we'll find the names for stars out there for the individual mnemonics. There are traditional names for the Inca peoples, for the Aztec peoples, and so forth. So not only have we named constellations, we've also named the bright stars. Now, as I said, most of the names are Arabic. And the reason for this is that all the classical texts that have come down to us from antiquity first got translated into Arabic. And when those works were then translated from Arabic back into Greek or Latin in about the 11th century or 12th century AD, many of the translators decided that they weren't even going to try to translate the names for the individual stars, and they simply transliterated the Arabic words into the present, into whatever language they were, to French, German, whatever. They never bothered except for a handful of stars whose names survived in the oral tradition from antiquity. So, for example... The stars Rigel, Albirio, and Deneb are recognizably Arabic. They've just been stripped of the diacritical marks and things like that that would be the hallmark of classical Arabic. A handful of Greek names survive, not surprisingly, for the very brightest stars in the Northern Hemisphere. Sirius, the blazer, the, the, the searer, is, of course, the bright dog star, Sirius. Arcturus, the bear guardian, Arcturus also remains a very, very bright red star in the constellation of Boötis in the summer sky. In Latin, Polaris, the northern pole star, and Spica, the Spica is actually the heads of wheat for Virgo, Spica is the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, those Latin names remain because they were important signposts for navigation systems, and so the Latin survival actually remained in Europe despite the transmission through Arabic. And then there are stars like Betelgeuse, which appears to be corrupted Arabic, but it's been so corrupted no one can even figure out precisely what the original word was, and we certainly don't know what its name is from antiquity. So, in the end, we can name the constellations, we can name the stars, and we can find ourselves in the heavens. This idea of the stars being a signpost, being this background against which we're going to look at the motions of the sun and moon, we're going to watch the daily motions of these stars. We're going to see the motions of the planets among these stars. By understanding this background and being able to map out the entire sky, we're ready to now take the next step and look for changes in the phenomena of the sky and begin to categorize and describe what we see when we stand out on a starry night. Are there any questions? Okay, I'll see you all on Monday.